Most or a good part of this chapter is based once again in one of the tractates of the Mishnah dealing with this subject and the particular tractate in the Mishnah that deals with the subject of liquids is called machshirim, raying food by exposing the food to liquid. So we talked about the fact earlier that there are seven liquids which by Torah decree must come upon food once the food has been severed from the ground and we identified these seven liquids earlier in these laws, chapter 1, halacha 2. What are these seven liquids? They are water is one, dew is number two, tal, tal is dew, shemen is oil, yayin is wine, cholov is milk, dam is blood, and dvash is bee honey. So, to repeat, we have water, dew, oil, wine, milk, blood, and honey. Those are the seven liquids where if food is exposed to them, the food is now ready to accept impurity if impurity comes its way. So now, he defines this and he qualifies it. He says, Aleph 1, Karbiyan, we've already explained previously, Shashib on Ashkin Bilba, that only seven liquids, Hain, are those, Shemistam, in, that may can become impure, a Machshirin, or can ready <coughs> something else and make it susceptible to become impure. Vehashar, and any other liquids, Kruyan, there's a catchphrase for all other liquids, they're called Meteris, fruit juices. Derivatives of fruit, meaning it's a general catch-all phrase, it's not one of the seven liquids. The Enom and the category described as may Peiros, fruit juice, do not Mistam and become defiled, Velay, Machshirin, nor do they ready other objects to become defiled. Now he says, Vishiva Mashkin Shamaninu, the seven liquids enumerated, till they say him. <coughs> we also have derivatives of those liquids, things that are similar and fall into the general category. The derivatives carry the same rules as the seven source liquids. So now we go into a world of derivatives, again, based in the Mishnah itself. And these derivatives are on the broad side. Bez halachatu. Till this hamayim, what is a derivative from the category called mayim water? It's all types of waters. It is. Body fluid secreted from the eye, water from the eye. Umina is water from the ear. Umina water from the nose. Umina and water from the mouth. Any type of body fluid being secreted by the eye, ear, nose, and mouth is included as a derivative of water. Furthermore, umei raglei b'neodom urine emanating from human beings. Bein gedelim bengtanim whether these human beings are adults, meaning major over the age of bar mitzvah or minor. Kol elu all of the above liquids. Hayetim which come forth b'neodom from men. Mashkin heim they are considered. Liquids. These body fluids, whether they came forth with the knowledge of the man from whom they come forth, of the human, or they come forth subconsciously, without knowledge. So the above list are derivatives of the first item in the list of seven, water. Abel, however, animal urine, or salt, that was liquefied. They are not included as a derivative of water. They are rather included in the catch-all phrase of the other which is the catchphrase of fruit juice. We're not suggesting that animal urine or water from salt is called fruit juice, but that's that phrase. And halachically, they don't become defiled. Nor do they ready and make other items susceptible to be defiled if they are exposed to impurity. Gimel, one of the list of seven is blood. Okay, so what's complicated about that? I'm glad you asked. It's very complicated. Hadam When we enumerate blood as one of the seven liquids, we refer specifically to the blood that flows from a kosher, domesticated or undomesticated animal, or fowl or bird, as it is being slaughtered, and specifically, as he will define, we refer to that which is called the blood of life. The blood of life. In other words, the blood which transitions that animal or bird from life to death. That's the blood we speak of. Abel, however, dam kiluach, flowing blood, just blood that flows, it's not the blood of life, ain't a does not make anything susceptible for impurity. 
Because after this blood flows, the animal is still alive. So it's not considered blood, blood. It's not one of the seven liquids, because when we talk about blood as one of the seven liquids, we mean life, death, blood. By the way, we've learned many times before, and we will learn many times later, that the reason an animal becomes readied for impurity when it is slaughtered or killed is because the blood flows on it. The blood from the shita, the blood from the killing process. So that blood readies an animal to become impure, because the blood is one of the seven, provided it is the blood of life. But just blood that flows... The blood that flows, or even at the beginning of the slaughtering process, blood flows. It doesn't count. It's similar to the blood of a wound, or to the blood of bloodletting. These are not the bloods we speak of. When somebody is slaughtering an animal. And the blood sputters on foods. And then the shochet cleaned the blood off. Between severing one sign of kosher shita and the other, there are two signs that have to be severed for an animal to be considered kosher shrita, and that is the windpipe and the esophagus. So between the two, we're not sure if this is considered blood of life or not, because you need the majority of both these signs to be severed in order for the animal to be considered kosher and really slaughtered. So tell you all of this object would be held in abeyance and suspense. We don't eat it, because it may be impure due to this exposure to blood if it was later exposed to impurity. And we also don't burn the item due to the fact that it is impure, because we're not sure. Maybe it is pure. Now, is there or are there derivatives to blood? Yes. Tell this the derivatives are... Is when blood is released from a human being and the intent of the release is for whatever reason and it's not necessarily or necessarily not a cultural thing where the guy wants to drink the human blood. So it's being released to drink. But if it was released for health, bloodletting, tall hair, it is considered pure. The aim they does not ready something and make it susceptible to impurity. So also the blood of ritual slaughter. In the case of an animal, domestic, or wild, meaning like a deer, and fowl, hatmeim. Impure, similar, the blood that is released together with mucus or pus or together with feces, or blood that exists in boils, or blisters, and blood concentrated in flesh, which we call in the case of an animal. It's not blood, it's just juice. They don't take on defilement and they don't ready and make food susceptible for defilement. They are just like any other. Liquids which fall into the catchphrase of fruit juice. What about the dam hasheretz, the blood of a rodent, a dead rodent? Kipsore must be treated not like blood, but like its flesh. Metame, it brings about defilement. Ve'ein amachshir, but does not ready for defilement. Ve'ein lonu kayetzebe, and that's unique in this category. Dalit may hecholov. What about water that comes out with milk, which people refer to as whey, the watery liquid that separates from the solid part of the milk when it turns sour, or when a piece of an animal's stomach is added in a cheese-making process? That's called the water of milk. Whey, W-H-E-Y. Is considered like milk. Whey is milk. What about human milk? Meaning the milk of a nursing mother. Which is not needed. It's not that you have the milk of a nursing mother that was pumped for the baby. It's unnecessary. It's not considered liquid. Because it's not used by anybody for anything. It doesn't ready. It doesn't take on defilement. In the event where you have the rare phenomenon where a male gives forth milk from the breast of the male, it's not considered a liquid. Similarly speaking, the milk of a domestic or wild animal that comes forth, not, by, not with a plan, not with effort, not with willingness. Again, for example, no one was milking anybody, but the milk just ripped out of the teeth of the animal. Or he was just working with the animal and it just came out. Not intentional is not considered milk to be one of these liquids. Mother's milk. Whether it came out with intent or without intent. As a general rule, it is considered one of these liquids. And it becomes defiled. And readies other items makes them susceptible for defilement. Why? Because unlike the earlier description at the very beginning and so on, where it's not used, here, this milk is ready to be used by a baby. For example, when a woman pumps milk, or, or even if milk comes out on its own, it's usable. It's going to be used probably. That makes it into the category of one of these liquids that make objects susceptible and take on impurity.
Hey, five Hamashkin shiyeitz and yeitzin atmeim. Shaisan Hamashkin abeis atumah. Here comes an interesting law. There are certain people who are serious primary sources of impurity. For example, the zov, the man who has an abnormal flow, the zova, the woman who has an abnormal flow, or human semen, or the the, 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 the semen of a zov of a person with an abnormal flow, his urine, and so on and so forth. These are serious sources of impurity, as we learned earlier in great detail. So these liquids that come forth from these serious sources of impurity, they spread defilement without the object which became defiled being ready by exposure to liquid. Because the impurity is so severe. Also, all of the above items we speak about are liquid, so the susceptibility and the defilement come simultaneously. This is a complete list of the liquids we speak of. Again, these are liquids that come from serious primary sources of impurity. Zayv. A man who has an abnormal sexual flow, discussed earlier in great detail. Zayv Hazov, so any of this flow which flows from him. Vishikh Bazari and his semen, who may be not his urine, all of the above are considered major sources of impurity. Rabbi is dominant on this. Another example is that quarter of a lug, that's a measurement, of blood that comes forth at the time of death. Vidam Hanida, or the blood of a menstruating woman. Vechain, so also dam Magifosh Shal the blood of a wound of a Zav. And all the other categories associated with Zov, the Cholov Shel Isha, or the milk of a woman who has this serious source of impurity, and the tears of eyes, Imshar, Pel, Desamayim, with the other derivatives, Mekamim, all of the above, if they emanate from a serious source of impurity like a Zov, they bring about defilement, Kimashkim, Tameim, like any other impure liquids, Shemitamim, Belay Kabana, that bring about defilement without special intent. You don't need special intent here. Shemashkim, Tameim, because impure liquids, Mitamim, convey impurity, Lerotzing, Bishalay Lerotzing, whether you intend it to do it or not. And that's unlike the food where you need Mashoba. You need to focus and say, Yum, this is going to be food for me. This is not a requirement for the fecal, therefore, practically speaking, Nida, a woman who is in a state of Nida, which is part of the above list, a Zoba, or a woman who is in a state of Zoba, which is the abnormal flow, the Nida is the normal blood flow within a woman, the Zoba is the abnormal blood flow within a woman. Assuming that mother's milk came forth from her breast and entered in some way into the airspace of an oven, so that is a liquid which came forth from a major source of impurity. That liquid is sufficient to convey impurity to the oven and everything in it. Again, just to emphasize, probably for the thousandth time, that we're speaking of based on Migdash law, of holy temple law, or sacrifice law. These are not everyday laws in our time. Vov, the Rambam reminds us that we've already explained earlier, time and again, that any liquids which come forth from a person who has already immersed in the mikvah, only waiting for the sun to set and the day to be over, so it can be pronounced completely pure, there is leniency associated with the state. Their liquids, ain't not were not decreed as being impure. The whole idea of impure liquids, in many cases, is a rabbinic decree. Certainly the more lenient ones. And therefore, this rabbinic decree was not legislated in the case of a tful yaim, someone who has already immersed and is just waiting for the few hours to pass where the sun will set. And it will get dark. Even if the liquids of this tful yaim, the body fluids, fell on a bread of truma, kohen food, which we know is more sensitive to purity, or even derivative three, could make it impure, as we learned earlier, a nemuksher will not even be considered as readied to accept impurity, until it is desired that this liquid or body fluid falls upon this bread. Kishar hamashim, like any other liquids, hatahedim, which are pure, she'en on machshin, we're only speaking about making ready, susceptible, and it has to be lerotse, it has to be to the will and desire of the owner. Now again, this is all dealt with in one form or another in the Mishnah. Traktate machshirin, zayin hazeyah, what about sweat? Human sweat, it's a liquid. You know, people sweat, they say, oh, I'm soaking wet. It's a liquid. You can squeeze my shirt out. What about pus? Which is a toxic liquid. Or feces. What are these considered? Or any liquids that come out of a child that in all likelihood will not live because the child is premature. And we've discussed many times that in halacha we say that a baby who is born full term, nine months, will probably survive. But we still wait 30 days to see if he does. A baby even born after seven months will probably survive. Or in the seventh month. This is what we call azibital. A child born in the seventh month, but a child born in month eight will not survive. Now, I must point out that today with the science that exists in the whole uh, neonatal uh, CCU, ICU, and, and all of the advanced medical care, 
for babies, for newborns, then this changes these realities. We're talking about once upon a time when babies either lived or they didn't live, and there were no incubators. Yeah, there, were, there were no neonatal units, and so on. So liquids which come forth from a baby that is not going to make it. Another example. Someone who drinks water out of the health spas of Tiberius, or any other type of health spas, on springs, desert hot springs, even though this water is internalized in the body and shoots out of the body and comes out as clear water. For example, he gives a case here where the person just had a situation of, as they say in the commercials, this is not a polite word to pronounce, of diarrhea, but the diarrhea was clear. So the body just processed the water, chick They had influenza or what have you. All of the above, beginning with sweat and pus and feces and liquids of a month-eighth fetus. And people who drink waters of Tiberius, which shoot right out of them, all of the above are not considered liquid. They don't become defiled, nor do they make objects, other objects susceptible for defilement. I made a bracha earlier, I will just have some water. Fine. All these liquids make you thirsty. I mean, some of them make you thirsty. Now the question is, can the body, the human body, purify impure liquids? If you take in a liquid that's impure, will it come out pure? If somebody drinks any other liquid, and then it comes forth from the body, they are considered liquids exactly as they were earlier. All other liquids do not become transformed into pure liquids just because they went through the human system. So that's not a good way to purify liquids. Again, we're talking about base Hamigdash era. Ketzad, for example, what if somebody ingested impure water? The Hekin, and then he vomited them out. They remain impure. So if anybody, somebody cleans up that vomit and touches it, he's impure. They do not become purified as they exit the body. If somebody drank defiled water, and then he immersed in a mikvah, so now he's pure. And then he vomited them out. Or, here he describes another condition. And that is that the water became toxic. It became spoiled. And then he regurgitated it. And there's a halacha. And he brings down in the note, because once water becomes disgusting, loathsome, they can no longer be placed in the halacha category of liquids, because it's too disgusting to be a liquid. Or, it came forth as urine, even though he did not immerse himself. They are pure. Because they have really been processed through the body. Or in other cases, because of the reasons described. What if he consumed other impure liquids? Or other impure foods? Although he immersed. And he regurgitated them. He's impure. Because liquids and foods do not become purified in the body. But if they become... Uh, disgusting, toxic. Or they came forth as liquid, as urine. These are the only cases where the, the water can actually be transformed from impure to pure. Now we go into the world of sweat, which again is discussed at great length in the Mishnah. We explained earlier that in general terms, sweat is not considered within the halachic category of halachic liquids for these purposes. A even if somebody ingested impure liquid, and then he sweated and sweated, his sweat is pure. Impure liquid ingested does not necessarily or necessarily not produce impure sweat. There is a condition. We talked about a rabbinic decree that if you have human drawn water, not a mikvah, there's a rabbinic decree that this experience should make someone impure. And that was instituted because people used to bathe in mikvahs that were not 100% clean, and then they would bathe in bath water. And then they stopped using the mikvahs and only used the bath water. So our sages made a decree that human drawn bath water will actually convey a rabbinic impurity. So if somebody enters into human drawn water, and then he sweated, in this case his sweat is impure because he just came out of an impure condition. But if he dried up from, if he dried himself up, he used a towel. He dried himself up from this water, and then he sweated. The sweat, per se, is pure. Earlier, it was the liquid itself that was probably upon him. Now we have a situation where sometimes due to excess moisture, a house will sweat. The moisture that collects on the walls of homes, or or trenches, caves, and cisterns, if they have liquid, they will often have moisture. We have this very often when we walk into a bathhouse, or a mikvah. The walls are soaked. Why are the walls soaked? Because that's the condition of moisture. Because water evaporates, and it becomes moisture on the walls. None of the above is considered liquid. It's considered moisture. 
Even if the water is impure, the sweat, the moisture created because of it, the is pure. But there is an exception, and that's the example that I just gave. The moisture in a bathhouse is like the water that caused the moisture. If the bath was considered, or the bathhouse was considered impure, its water was impure, the moisture will be impure, because it's the same water. If it was pure, and for example, he brought fruit into it, then it has been readied and made susceptible. But if they brought utensils, the water upon them is considered separate from the ground source willingly, and that is considered susceptible for impurity. What about a swimming pool? An indoor swimming pool. Yudalev. You know, here, I say here in California, although there are many indoor swimming pools, but it's not that big a deal, but on the East Coast, oh, we have an indoor swimming pool. You can go swimming when it's 25 degrees below outside. So it was a big deal. So back there, I guess they also bred when they had an indoor swimming pool. So he says, Habrecha, an indoor swimming pool, a pool in a house, because there's an indoor swimming pool, the house is sweating, there's moisture on the walls of the house. If the pool was considered impure, then the moisture within the house, because of this pool, is also considered impure. It's like a bathhouse. Yudbeis, what if there is a really luxurious situation? Somebody has two swimming pools in the house. One milk and one pleasure. One is impure for whatever reason. And the other is pure. And you have moisture on the wall. If it's closer to the impure pool, the moisture is considered impure. The moisture is closer to the pure pool. The is considered pure. What if it's on the half-half mark? And we lean towards the impure decision. Moving right along. Mohel means juice. Dripping. Let's say you have olives. If you press olives, what will you have? Olive oil. If you let olives sit, it can drip like a blackish juice. It's not really olive oil, or is it? So he says, oil, the juice that drips from olives, Kishemen is treated like oil. Oil is one of the seven liquids. What if you have baskets? Baskets have holes in them. Baskets, like woven baskets, which have olives in them, or grapes in them, and so liquid drips out. What is this considered? This is not considered liquid. They do not become defiled. Nor do they make objects susceptible for defilement. Until they're put in a container, then whatever comes out of them, as mentioned earlier in 13, is considered an oil-like liquid, or a grape-like liquid. Similar scenario, 14. Somebody weighs grapes in a weighing pan, in a scale. The wine which ripped into this pan, is not considered liquid. Until you pour it into a container. Only when you pour it into a container do you show that it's a, it's a matter of importance to you. Otherwise, it's just stuff. But before it is poured into a container, it's just comparable to a wicker basket filled with olives or grapes, which dripped. Which we said earlier is not impurity. It's not a source of impurity or a source of susceptibility. Tesva of Adeides, when somebody presses unloving grapes, shall truma of truma, these grapes are calling food, and he's pressing them in Bechavis into a barrel. He's not trying to squeeze them, he's not making wine. He's just trying to get as many grapes in as possible into the barrel. Even though the wine, what's wine? The grape juice is floating on his hands, and we know that hands have tremendous impure rulings because of rabbinic decrees of Yodayim, of hands, because Yodayim Asconius, hey, we said, because the hand is always busy going everywhere. Everything is considered pure. Why? Because he's not intending to produce wine or grape juice. He's intending to get as many grapes as possible into this barrel, and the juice that's there is not something he desires or wants. Tezayin, now we segue for the next few paragraphs, the closing paragraphs, to another subject. And that is, and we touched upon this in great detail earlier, let me give you a little bit of an introduction. The holy temple, the Beis Hamikdash, the primary function of the Beis Hamikdash was, it was a house where sacrifices were brought. We learned earlier in the laws, Hilchis Beis Abchira, we learned that there was a whole butchering section where they slaughtered the animals and they butchered the animals and so on and so on and so forth. There was a lot of slaughtering and butchering of animals in the Beis Hamikdash. That's what they did. So, when you butcher an animal, the blood comes forth, when you slaughter an animal, the blood comes forth and readies it. I said that earlier. In the Beis Hamikdash, a lot of things are going on. Stuff could become impure. So the halacha is that anything that goes on in that area, in the Beis Hamikdash, Anything that goes on in the temple courtyard, slaughtering and sacrifice related, do not have any of the applications of impurity or readying for impurity. It's simply something that we're taught DNA does not apply. And here he revisits some of these factors. 
Mashke base mitbachayim shabazara, liquids that flow in the butchering area of the temple courtyard. Vehu, what would that be, those liquids? They're not flowing with cranberry juice. Dam hakadoshim, we're talking about the blood of the holy sacrifices. Vehamayim, they did a lot of washing and cleansing. There was a lot of cleansing, it was very sanitary. So, you need to cleanse with water. Which they use there, the blood and the water, will always be considered in a state of full purity. They don't become defiled, nor do they ready anything to become defiled. How do we know this? Where does it say? This is in fact a tradition handed down from Moshe at Mount Sinai. The fecal therefore called the Mehazvachim any sacrifice associated, sacrifice related blood, do not take on impurity, nor do they make other items susceptible for impurity. The hail and being that Bidam Kadoshim, blood of sacrifices. Ainamakshir does not ready anything for impurity, therefore Kadoshim, any holy sacrifices. Shenishkatu Bazara, which was slaughtered in the temple courtyard, Lehukshiru Bidam Shkita. They're not even considered having been made susceptible with the blood of sacrifice. Because this whole application does not apply. How do we know? From Mount Sinai. The Ain Lipsar Hakadoshim Heksher, the only way you can make the meat of holy sacrifices in the courtyard, readied and susceptible to take on impurity. Let's say there was an outside source of impurity that came and touched the animal part. Does it become impure? The answer is no, because no liquid touched it. What about the blood from its slaughter? It doesn't count. What liquid has to touch it? What about the water from washing? It doesn't count. It has to be an outside liquid. Perrier, Calistoga water. Let's say the Cohen runs out to 7-Eleven and buys a Perrier. It has to be liquids that will fall on the meat. Not one of the liquids of the butchering area, which would be the blood of the animal or the water used for cleansing. Yudzai in the closing paragraph in this chapter, in chapter 10. Poras Kadoshim. Here, therefore, you have another scenario. You have a cow that was holy, that was consecrated for a sacrifice. You caused this cow to cross a river. The cow had to get across the LA River in order to get to the Holy Temple. Now, the river has water. And the cow, at the time of slaughter, had moisture. Where's the moisture from? The river. Where's the river from? Not the temple courtyard. He then slaughtered it in the temple courtyard. But there's still moisture on this cow. Outside temple courtyard area moisture. Aha. Uh-huh. So now you have a cow that is no longer in the living. It had moisture upon it. While well, it was still alive, but now it's dead and it has moisture upon it. That moisture from the river will be considered as having made this susceptible. Therefore, the plot thickens. You know, one of the common halachas in laws of kosher and non-kosher, if you find a pin, you find a needle in an animal, did it puncture it, did it not puncture it? How did the needle get in the animal? I don't know. It was in the garment district. That needle there. In the shmata district. If you find a needle, which was clearly known as an impure needle, an impure needle conveys impurity. How did this animal become susceptible to impurity? Through the water of the river it crossed, which was, the moisture was still on his body during the time of slaughter. The meat of this animal in the temple courtyard will be considered impure because of this needle, which is identified as an impure source. Similar scenario. If this cow's mouth was sealed close outside of Jerusalem, which means it couldn't ingest anything in Jerusalem, so if it ingested a needle, it had to be outside Jerusalem, and here we're going to refer to a law we learned in great detail earlier, that as a rule, anything found in Jerusalem is considered pure. As a rule, anything found outside Jerusalem is considered impure. The cow's mouth was sealed closed, was muzzled closed, so it couldn't have ingested this pin in anything it ate in Jerusalem. So the pin is from outside Jerusalem, so it's assumed impure. Even though in this case, we have no idea whether the pin is pure or impure. In the earlier scenario, we knew the pin was impure. Here, we have no idea, as they say in French, I don't say pa, I don't know, equate meat in Flemish, the meat, now, of this animal, is considered impure. Why? Because we learned earlier, again in great detail, that utensils outside of Jerusalem, which are unknown as to whether they are impure or not, must be assumed as impure. Therefore, Nimse Samachat Baperesh, if this pin was found in the wastes of this animal, when the animal was cut up, the pin was found in the wastes in its stomach, Toher, the meat is still considered pure because it did not carry over from the waste area to the meat area. And again, the defilement doesn't start until the animal's dead. So it was limited to the waste area. 
Shouldn't we be concerned with the hands of the Kohen? Hands are impure. The answer is, remember, this law of hands being impure is not legislated in the base of Migdash. Shein tumas yadayim b'migdash. There is no concern of impurity of hands in the base of Migdash. This rabbinic decree did not apply. Kamei Shabiyanu, as we explained earlier, in great detail. Chapter 8, Halacha 6. Bamed, varim amurim wind, does the above apply the asabas otomi where the meat should be considered impure, but didn't tell by Torah law. Avo, there's a whole new category of law. It's called bidibreim by rabbinic law. We learned this earlier as well. There's a whole different rabbinic law, and that is because of the importance of a sacrifice. The fact that it is a sacrifice already has enough importance that it doesn't even need to be made susceptible with liquid. Any exposure to impurity, boom, makes it impure. Susceptible or not susceptible. The endearment of the fact that this is holy makes it so venerable that it's ready to take on impurity. Rabbinic decree. Therefore, any type of impurity touched it, which again is quite unusual because they worked very hard to keep the impurity out of the base on the But it happens. Bein kala, whether it's a leaner or lighter form of impurity, such as a dead rodent, bein chamura, or a more severe type of impurity, such as a zov or zov or what have you, nifsula, the item becomes disqualified. Even though it was never ready and made susceptible with liquids, as we explained, this rabbinic decree, end of chapter 10. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais, Tumas, Ochalim, the laws of impurity, associated with food, Pedic Achad chapter 11, continuing with the whole idea of when something is considered to have acquired moisture, to be mukhshar, to be ready or susceptible, lekabel tumah, to receive impurity. That's the subject matter which we've been studying here. We've talked about the fact that there is an entire tractate called Machshirin in the Mishnah dealing with this issue. <coughs> Many of the halachas in this chapter are also dealt with in the tractate of Taharos, the tractate of purity, which is a catch-all tractate which deals with these laws. And the basis and axiomatic foundation of these laws are that something does not become impure until it is first willingly exposed to moisture, and the moisture has to be of seven particular types of moistures and their derivatives, and it has to be willing. The person has to intend for the moisture to come about. Aleph 1, so therefore we come to these practical scenarios. If somebody is harvesting grapes, because he wants to sell the grapes, <coughs> he's going to put up a, a stand, and he's going to sell grapes. Moisture's grape stand. Bailey option, or he's going to take the grapes and dry them. And I remember when I was a kid, the shock I experienced, when I found out that raisins are dried grapes. Wow! Raisins, by the way, in case you're not aware, raisins are dried grapes. He wants to make raisins out of them. They do not become susceptible to take on impurity. Until liquid moisture falls upon them, and he wants it to happen. Like all other foods, which we've discussed. So that is, therefore, when someone is collecting, harvesting grapes, because he wants to sell them, he's not looking for moisture. When somebody is harvesting grapes because he wants them to become raisins, the last thing he wants is moisture, because raisins are dried grapes. And therefore, they do not become susceptible to take on impurity, because even if they are a little moist, he doesn't want them to be moist. And that's enough to say they're not moist. Abel, however, conversely, on the other hand, if somebody harvests grapes, because he wants to crush them in the wine vat and make wine the crusher in the processor, and he wants to make wine out of them, what is his intent? Liquid. Immediately the grapes become readied for impurity. And here is a fantastic law here. Even though there was zero moisture came upon this bunch of harvested grapes, how could it possibly <coughs> become susceptible if there was no moisture? That's a special decree, rabbinic decree. And therefore, being no by tumor, and if impurity came upon it, nikma, it is impure even though there was zero moisture. Why? This is a special decree enacted by the rabbis. And I want to just share a fascinating note with you. This is fantastic. There's a section in Gemara Shabbos which talks about the fact that this is the opinion of Shammai. As a rule, we take the opinion of Hillel over Shammai. Hillel originally did not accept this stringency. Nevertheless, after Shammai forcefully presented his arguments, Hillel remained silent, leading to the conclusion that he accepted Shammai's position. This is one of the 18 stringencies decreed on the day that the students of the school of Shammai outnumbered the students of the school of Hillel. And we talked about this special day when 18 stringencies were decreed, and this is one of them. Again, just for clarity, what is this stringency? Because the grapes are harvested to make wine out of them. That's the intent. Even if there was no liquid upon them, they become impure by exposure to impurity just because... Now, says the Rambam, if you're wondering why they made this decree, as we say in French, pourquoi? 
Why did our sages issue this decree that if somebody is harvesting for the purpose of the wine press, it's already considered ready to take on impurity? The answer is as follows. Very logical. Because very often a person will enter into his vineyard to ascertain if the time has come to harvest. He wants to know the grapes are ripe yet. Is it harvest time? I'm sure everybody here does it with their vineyard all the time. And they squeeze a cluster of grapes. Just to check it. I'll give it a squeeze just to check it. Where does the juice squeeze out onto on other grapes? How soon is that have already been harvested? Because this is all about pressing these grapes and creating grape juice or wine. And furthermore, because he's not concerned with the grapes, because they're going to be pressed anyway, when he is harvesting grapes to sell them, you want it to be Gelson's quality, as we say here. You want every grape to look gorgeous. But when you're harvesting grapes to press them, who cares how they look? They're going to be pressed in an hour anyway. So it softens, we also make them when the juices come out. But what he is concerned about is not to lose the juices, so that the wine or grape juice doesn't go to the ground, but it's caught and it's saved. Therefore, it becomes ready for impurity with this liquid. Therefore, because of this sociological, anthropological background, Gozru, they decreed, that anybody will harvest. For the wine press, immediately, even if there's no liquid, it should become ready for impurity. Base two. What if somebody's harvesting grapes? And again, what's his mindset? His mindset is as follows. If I find a good market for it, I'll sell it. If I can't find a good buyer for a good price, I'll press them. I'll put it in the wine press, which again, doesn't need the gorgeous grapes. just needs good tasting grapes. It does not become ready until it goes into the domain of the wine press. The same law applies with the sister product. What's the sister product in Aloka? The grapes? Olives. There is grapes. Make wine. Olives make olive oil. Which came into the domain of the olive press, who should they become ready for impurity? Commission's boy, as we will explain. Gimel 3. If somebody harvests grapes, when the sun will be obvious, and he places them in a storage pit, he spreads them upon leaves that can contain whatever juices, they become ready with the liquids that come forth. Why? Because his intent is for liquid. Because this is what it's all about. Therefore, that's why he put it on the leaves to catch the liquid. That's why he put it in the storage container. Which is like a sister. Like a pit. Therefore, if someone who is in a state of impurity, or whose hands have been. The state of impurity. Timon defiled them, then it is defiled. Because the liquid already readied it to take on defilement. But are not on the salad bar to be harvested these grapes or olives and put them into baskets. Not, not olives, grapes. He put them into baskets. Wicker baskets, a bimash or in something earthenware, a earthenware utensil. I'm sorry, he spread them out on the earth. Or he put them in baskets. Bottom line is, is that the liquids are leaking out and he's not saving them. They're not ready. Why? Because the fact that they're leaking out of the baskets all over the place, or leaking into the ground, being absorbed, this shows that he's not concerned about the liquid. Therefore, because these were not ready, even someone who is in a state of ritual impurity can take and eat. Even though these grapes are already cracked open and they're dripping into the wine press, the wine press remains pure. Why? Because his interest is not in this liquid. Remember the axiomatic law? It has to be a willing exposure to moisture. Because they did not become ready for taking on impurity. And they were harvested to begin with, for eating. But obviously, if it would be harvested for wine, he wouldn't put them in wicker baskets or put them on the ground. So also, if somebody takes from the baskets to Menachem or from the earth area where he spread them out, Shalom, we all come ate. So he was munching. He left over a substantial amount, like a saw or two. A saw is like eight or nine liter. Even though the wine is dripping and sprinkling all over the grapes, they do not become ready because his intent was not to collect the liquid. Dalit for Anovim Shoyev Salim. Abimashteya grapes that were in baskets or spread out on the earth. Shaladom of Elokach Nehen Ledorchan. And he took some of those grapes to press them. Hoshiru, they become ready to be exposed to impurity. When he takes them, he has to take them only with pure hands. In order that an impure person not take from them, the Yatamon, and make them impure. Hey, here comes an interesting law we learned earlier about Beis Hapras. Beis Hapras is a field 
in which a corpse was buried once. They went and dug up the field, they plowed the field, and unbeknownst to anyone, the corpse was plowed over and were concerned that bone fragments, large enough to convey impurity, may be strewn somewhere in the field. Truth be told, we have no idea where the fragments are. This is called the base hapras. This is called an area with bone fragments, maybe. Rabbinically, the base hapras is considered impure. What is it? A rabbinic decree, just in case. So here's a situation where there's a vineyard in this base hapras, in this field, that may have bone fragments of a corpse strewn all over it. What happens to somebody who harvests it? For the vineyard, who harvests these grapes from this vineyard? For the press, a, for the wine press, a it does not become legally susceptible for impurity as long as it's in the base apras. Why? We learned earlier that when somebody harvests grapes to press, it does become. Why? It's a rabbinic decree, one of those 18 laws of Shammai over here. The answer is, I guess the American word for that might be double jeopardy. The answer is because the whole decree of impurity coming from this type of field is a rabbinic decree. And the whole decree of having grapes harvested for pressing, becoming impure is a rabbinic decree. So you have rabbinic decree on top of rabbinic decree. Therefore, Hey, Caleb and our sages, took a lenient approach with this particular decree. The Legos are all of them. They did not decree Shia Muksher that this particular harvest become ready. until it leaves this field. Because we don't want to place rabbinic decree on top of rabbinic decree. So therefore, because these grapes are being harvested in this field with the bone fragments, which rabbinic decree says is impure, then the grapes that are harvested for the press don't become impure until they leave that field. I'm sorry. Lefikal, therefore, leaves to the base What should somebody do if he wants to harvest from this field? Lagas to the wine press, Bitar, and he wants to maintain ritual purity so he can deal with these in a state of holiness. Again, these are based on English laws having to do with sacrifices and truma and so on. So he gives a prescription here. How to process grapes grown in a field with a strewn corpse and maintain ritual purity. This is actually legally very interesting. Number one, he has to purify the harvesters and all the tools used. How do you purify something that might have been exposed to death? You take a sprinkling of the red heifer mixture and you apply it on day three and day seven, as we explained at great length in that section. And then we wait till the sun sets in order to show that we're not taking any leniencies when it comes to this rabbinic form of impurity. It's only because it's a doubt. Our case is a doubt on top of a doubt. And then people go in, and they harvest, and they bring the produce outside the field. So now people who have been purified have done the job and harvested it and put the grapes outside the field. Now, without handing it to one another because they'll contaminate each other, other people may take it or may lichen the gas and they take it to the wine press. And if one group of harvesters touch the transporters, these guys in the truckers, they become impure. And then they make the grapes impure. Because people in a base in a field of this type are considered impure. They convey impurity to those outside the field. And what level of impurity do they convey to them? Level one. Because it's liquids. And they then make the grapes impure. Because they become ready as soon as they leave the base area. Therefore, this is this complex prescription. There's discussion here as to whether this may be done to begin with. I believe the Rambam says it can. Others say it's best perhaps that they shouldn't. Okay. If somebody's harvesting his olives, in order to pickle them, you know, olives are made ready with all kinds of spices and pickling. He wants to sell his olives in the olive market. They do not become ready to take on impurity until he willingly makes them moist. Like any other foods. Just because he's harvesting Olives, it doesn't mean that the moisture on them counts because his intent is here to do something with these olives. What's he doing with these olives? He's pickling them, he's selling them, he's not pressing them. Or, if he is harvesting them to press them in the olive press, like, oh, should become a lockdown. there's another out here, they do not become ready until the job is done, meaning until they are completely ripe and ready to go. Why should they become ready? If they are complete, what liquid did they get? There is a juice that comes out of the olives, which is more, not the olive oil, but more of a blackish juice, and that is a moisture. Where if it's done, that moisture counts. Because he wants that juice. Because he wants the olives to be soft and very easy to press. But before the olive is 100% done and ripe, that this black juice that comes out does not ready it because he doesn't want it. Therefore, Olives that have not had their full cycle of completion, where impure liquids fell upon them, and only the place you touch becomes impure. Like all other foods that are not ready. But other impure liquids that have come full cycle. 
fall upon them, Nikmukulam, it all becomes impure. Shamashkin Afeim, because impure liquid, Metamir Samel Shamayim, makes the juice, that black juice we talked about impure, Bamel Metamir Kulam, and the juice makes the olive completely impure, Shamel Shiyatamah Machadamalachim, because the juice that comes forth from the olive after it's done, full cycle, Kharshim is considered, Mashka as a real liquid, Umistami, it becomes impure, Umashir and readies. Zayin Chabish Alzeh Simbukulam, when there's a jug of olives that are salted and pressed together, a jug of olives that have been salted and pressed together. A barrel. The person has to puncture a hole in the barrel in order for the juice to drip out so that these olives not sit in their juice. Because if they sit in their juice, they're being ready. If he didn't puncture, then these become ready because he shows that he wants the liquid. What if he did puncture a hole so that the juice can leak out? And then the pieces, the olive sediments, seal the hole. It's all sitting in the juice. That is not. It's not considered ready. Why? Because his intent was that it come out. His intention was not that the sediments clog the hole. That was against his intent. They're not by his will, because he did puncture it. And here we see how very real, this idea of, does he want it to be a liquid, or does he not? How important that is in the system of halacha. When olives have been harvested for pressing, and at what point are they ready? And again, many of these halachas are taken straight out of the Mishnah, and the Rambam gives decisions. Once they've been harvested, and they are ready for pressing, even though liquid did not come upon them, the liquid did not come from them, just because they have come full cycle in their readiness, who should they become? Susceptible to impurity. That's because they are ready to go. But before we come full circle, even though they became soft, they began to sweat, and they began to stick together by their moisture. They're not considered ready because they have not come full circle. But he still has plans to take other olives. He's going to add other olives to this bunch. He's not quite done yet. Even if he only wants to add a little bit, a cob or two cob in a measure, a limited measure, they're still not considered ready for impurity. Now, if he made a trick, and he said, he sees that his olives are moist. He says, no, I want to add something. But he doesn't really want to add something. So he's just trying to fool the system. This is called haaroma, tricky. Then, as a punishment, it is. It does take on impurity. He finished buying whatever he could in the market, but he wants to borrow more money and add something. And he's looking for a lender. And something beyond his control occurred. And the he went to a party, he went to a bar mitzvah. He got busy with a bar mitzvah. He had no time to get more olives. He didn't add to it. Because he intended to add to it. It's not considered as having its work come full circle. The anon, the kabbatum, they do not take on impurity. Even the most serious, severe form of impurity, like the zov or the zova, can walk upon them, and they have not yet been considered moist, and they cannot take on impurity. Nine tests or eight and zesav. Somebody stores his olives, bishnei or bishnei in two separate olive presses. You have olive press A and olive press B, and he's storing them in both. He finishes filling olive press A. He says, "Okay, we're moving to B. A is ready to go. A already could become susceptible to take on impurity, even though there's still B. But the second olive press has nothing to do with the fact that the first is done. So the first can take on impurity." When a person is harvesting his olives in a place where olives grow very beautifully, and that is in the upper Galilee, northern, northern Israel. And just for those who might not know, there's a beautiful note here that the Galilee, the Galil, refers to the northern portion of Eretz Yisra. It is divided into Galil Ha'elion, Galil Ha'tachton, the upper Galilee, and the lower Galilee. The lower Galilee is the area between the cities of Haifa and Tiberias, and then there's an upper portion, the mountainous region north of those cities. Lower Galilee, upper Galilee. Both of these areas are very, very fertile areas, and were used for growing olives. So that's the geographical background here, to the soil test. So he's collecting, he's harvesting his olives in the upper Galilee. The Aussie lady, and he wants to transport them to the lower Galilee. Now the question is, do they already become susceptible to impurity? And you know, remember we learned that even if someone is not 100% meticulously known for his purity level, that anything is considered impure. So it's like tricky, tricky. You're going to transport stuff. Who's going to transport it? Where are you going to stop? What about the rest areas? And the Kabul and Tuma, they don't receive. Take on impurity, actually, until he gets to the lower galley. But before he gets to his destination, it's not a done deal. And that's why he gives this whole scenario. You have to get to your destination. As long as he thought about this, he had this intent before he harvested them. You can't harvest them and then see your trouble is coming. You say, whoops, I want to move it to the lower galley. That's not an out. After he harvested them, this thought does no good. They do become ready for impurity. Come on, say something. What if he finished harvesting his olives and he intends to sell them? He's going to put them in the olive market. Again, because he's selling them rather than juicing them, rather than creating olive oil, they do not become ready. If he intends to cover them with leaves, they become ready to become and they do receive impurity. 
because the idea of covering them with leaves protects them from sand or rain, and although the owner completed storing the olives, one might think they do not become susceptible to impurity since he intends to perform another task, but since the work involving the olives themselves is complete, once they're collected and stored, they become susceptible to impurity from that point and onward. Yudalaf 11. Halakeach. What if somebody purchases a storage vat of olives from a non-Jew? We learned earlier that there's a rabbinic decree. By Torah law, a non-Jew doesn't have impurity. There's a rabbinic decree that a non-Jew deals with something that should be considered rabbinically impure. So here he bought a whole storage vat of olives from a non-Jew. The question is, did this storage vat already be readied to accept the impurity? If there are still olives to harvest on the ground, then there's no reason it cannot be done in a state of impurity. I'm sorry, correction. If... There are olives to harvest on the ground. He should process them in a state of impurity. Because they should be considered as if it's already ready. So therefore, these olives have to be treated as impure olives. It's a Jew. Even someone who's ignorant of the laws of purity and impurity is reliable, like to say, this storage bat is not complete, and that statement is enough to make it not take on impurity. What if somebody wants to take some olives from a mound of olives that have not been ready, have not come full circle, they're not completely done. And he wants to just press some olives because he wants to put some olive oil on his salad. He can take it in a state of impurity, and he has to, and he can transport it to the olive press area, in a state of impurity. And he can cover the rest in a state of impurity. He's not concerned. Because these have not been readied, no matter what he does, this has still not been readied and susceptible to take on impurity, so it's all good. If somebody places his olive in an olive press, why does he put it there? Because he wants them to soften and be easier to crush. You can't really do a good job pressing hard olives. The olives have to soften up before you can get good oil. Ask Mr. Bertoli, he'll tell you. This is already considered ready. Because placing it in the press is already a sign that he's ready to press them. That they should wait and soften. After they soften. And after they age, he's going to salt them. Then they're not ready to take on impurity because there's a process still to be done. Because he's going to salt or pickle them. We're talking about olives that are true. A person breaks them apart or rubs them with hands that are not necessarily pure. So on, this makes them disqualified. Because breaking them apart is a sign that it's full circle. So on the self come but if he's breaking them apart, of course he's going to salt them, that they're not ready. So also if he's just cracking them open to see if there's oil, and if they're ready to, to process, to, to harvest, they do not become ready. Somebody places olives on the roof in order to make them dry. I feel angry, even if they are a cubit high. If you have a mound of olives a cubit high, then the stuff in the middle and the bottom are not going to get dry so fast. And they're not considered ready because they're up there to dry. The son of Babaya Shayukul, if you put them in the house, that they should soften. Even though he still has to move them up to the roof, the son of Babaya Shayukul, he put them on the roof to soften. He's going to still, he's going to open them and spread them out. They're ready to go. The son of Babaya Shayukul, what if he stored them in the house until he readies his roof for drying purposes? Until he transports them to another place, he temporarily puts them. The fact that it's temporary does not make it ready because it's not completely full cycle. Tezayin. We're moving towards the end of this chapter. What if somebody stores his olives in the care of someone who is not meticulously known for his purity observance? He's just a regular guy. So he rents a storage area from this guy, and he puts a lock on, and he puts a seal on. The halacha says that the lock doesn't have to be a fancy lock. The seal doesn't have to be a fancy seal. Even uh, he put a toothpick. See, if somebody was messing with it, the toothpick will move. That's also a seal. But basically, he'll know when it was tampered with, because he's concerned that this fellow, who is the landlord, will come in and touch the olives, and he's not considered ritually pure. He doesn't have to be paranoid. To think that the guy has another key and the guy resealed it, not necessary. You can trust him. Furthermore, even if he walks over and finds that the seal is broken and the lock is open, but nothing looks tampered with, because the visual is good, it's considered pure. What does he think happened? So the, the scenario here is some thieves broke in. They saw that there's only olives here. They're not interested in olives. What they wanted is iPads. 
Not olives. They wanted apples. <laughs> ha, I'm such a funny guy. So, therefore, he figures it's pure. Nobody touched it. What kind of seal are we talking about? Even a rock, even a stone, a pebble, a piece of wood. There were cracks and crevices on the sides where you can approach. Now, is that if an impure person takes a stick and pokes something and moves it, it makes it impure. He doesn't have to be concerned. Maybe the guy poked it. You don't need to have that level of concern. What if there were hand breaths? Four hand breaths, wide windows. Every four hand breaths or more wide window is a door. It has to be treated like the laws of a door. It has to be sealed. And then you got to see if it looks like it was tampered with. Closing paragraph of this chapter, Yudzayin 17. Very interesting. If somebody is pressing olives and this shipment is being done in a state of impurity, he's not pure. The worker, nobody's pure. Again, we've talked about this many times, but I'll talk about it again. We don't have to maintain a level of ritual purity unless we're a Kohen eating Kruma, or part of the family of the Kohen eating Kruma, or we're going to the base of Migdash to offer sacrifices, or we're going to eat sacrifices. Now, some people always maintain ritual purity. Good for them. Before you go to the base of Migdash, you have to immerse in the and follow all the laws and become pure. So it's okay to produce oil in a state of non purity. But what if the guy wants to switch to purity production? It's a company, BP, purity production. He wants to now purify all of the utensils, all of the implements, all of the machinery of his olive press. He wants to purify all of the stuff that absorbed into these utensils. What should he do? What's the process of purification? So he says, Klishalates, if the utensils were wooden, utensils, all he needs to do with wood and stone material is wash them. But if they are made from reeds, reeds are more complex. So create some more similar stuff. Then he has to dry them and make sure they're completely dry and have gotten over the moisture of the oil. What if they're made of a resinous cane? Commentary says it's like a rubber, which doesn't dry so fast. What do you do with that? The only thing to do is to leave it aged, let it dry for 12 months. Or there's another way. He can scald them in boiling hot water, or in the water in which olives were cooked. Or you can leave them under a drain pipe which flows with water. Mikalchin, flowing water, or into a running stream. Shemaim of Rafim, whose waters are running, Shemaim 12 hours of running. So you can put it under, what we say, under a faucet. They call it a drink pipe, but they didn't have faucets. Under a drain pipe or by running water for 12 hours. That is only to clean it from any residue that doesn't purify it. And after that, he has to first immerse everything in a mikvah. Anything that requires immersion must be immersed. So it's now clean and ritually pure. At this point in time, he can use it with meticulous care to produce pure olives. End of chapter 11. Rambam, Mishnah Torah. Hilcha is the laws of Tumas. Ochalin, impurities associated with food. Pedic Shneim Osar, chapter 12. Now we enter into a whole different category of details about this law. We learned earlier that one of the critical components of having food be able to become impure is it has to be mukshar lekabel tuma. It has to be made ready or susceptible to receive impurity. What does this mean? This goes back to a verse we talked about earlier. V'chiyutan mayim al zera. If water will be placed upon seed, that the item after it's harvested, meaning when it's not connected to the ground, must come into contact with water or one of the seven liquids, including water. There are seven liquids defined above with their derivatives. Now, there are many, many details involving this law of exposure to liquids. And that's what this chapter deals with. As I pointed out earlier, and I'll point out again, there is a tractate of Mishnah called Machshidin, which means to become ready or susceptible, which deals with these laws, and much of the laws in this Rambam are based upon the discussions in the Mishnah. It may be a good time to point out that unlike the Mishnah, by and large, what's unique about the Rambam is the Rambam doesn't have differing opinions. The Rambam decides halacha based upon what he thinks is the best application of the halacha. In the Mishnah, especially in this chapter, there's much discussion between Beis Shammai and Beis Ilo. Between the house of Shammai and the house of Ilo. In general, the Mishnah, there are different opinions. And that's what makes the Rambam so refreshing, is that a big part of his job is he takes and gives us his interpretation of the final halakha based upon the halakha of his teachers, and so on. Aleph 1, so the Rambam says, in general, the whole idea of making food ready, susceptible, prepared, 
to take on impurity. Divrei kabolo. Hey, these are words of tradition. When the Rambam and his contemporaries use the word kabolo, it doesn't mean mysticism. It means the oral law. This is an oral law tradition. The Piyashu the oral law teaches us, Shazesh and Amar, the verse, this famous verse, which deals with this issue. What's that verse? Vichy Yutan, Mayim al if water shall be placed on seed. Echad comprising both water, or any of the seven liquids. And we've talked about this. However, what we're dealing with here now is behu It has to be placed upon this food item that's been harvested with the will and desire of the owner. The guy has to want the liquid to come upon his food. He has to be happy about it. It also has to be after both the liquid and the water were severed from the ground. Which means, I'm sorry, after both the produce and the water were severed from the ground. Which means as long as the produce is attached to the ground, it cannot become ready. As long as the water is attached to the ground, it cannot become ready. The water has to be removed from its ground source. Because if you say that this is not so, it's well known to anyone and everyone that there is no item that grows which did not have water exposure when it was connected. The words, if water shall be given, only after the foods have been harvested, and after the liquids were also harvested, so to speak, from their source. And there's a very interesting teaching here brought down in the note that the term yutan is a strange word. It's written with these with three letters. It could be read without vowels. Yitain means he will give. When the owner will place, in which instance the laws would apply only if the owner purposefully poured liquids over the crops. Nevertheless, the tree, it is read, the water was placed, which would imply even if the crops were exposed to the liquids against the owner's will. So there's a mixed message here. If you read it the way it's written, it means the owner has to do it. If you read it the way it's read, it means that anyway it happens. So since it's written, but pronounced, the middle ground between the two is taken, a compromise. Even when the crops were exposed to liquids by natural forces, they become susceptible to impurity if the owner is happy about it. So that's the idea here. The owner has to be more or less happy that this is happening. And we're going to deal and visit a lot of the details here. Base too, called any liquid, shall not which fell. upon the food item. Bitchilo, to begin with, Bitchilo, to begin with, he was very happy about it. But at the end, he said, never mind. He wasn't so happy about it. But at the end, he was happy about it. But at the beginning, he was not happy about it. That does ready the food. Because at least he was happy about it either at the beginning or at the end. But if it was against his will altogether, it does not ready the food. I'm sorry, I feel a ball who paid Asa, but even if the owner himself exposed his food to liquids because of the danger, there was something threatening his liquids, so he threw them all into the water to protect them. Or he needed to ship his foods downstream, so he put them in the river. But he's not interested in making them wet, he's just interested in protecting them or shipping them downstream. This also does not consider fit, it's not considered fit. He has to want the wetness to come about, not only the act. And here the Ramban spells it out. There are thieves coming, they're going to take his crop, so he hides the crop underwater. Or he ships his Crops, he floats them downstream to bring them with him. That's not considered it's made susceptible, made prepared for impurity. Gimel, three mashkin liquids. That was uprooted from their natural habitat against the owner's will. Again, water has a natural habitat. It's flowing in a cavern, in a fountain, in a stream, something on the ground. That's the natural habitat of water. Uprooting the water is also required, just like you need to uproot the crops, you need to uproot the water. What if the water was uprooted against his will or not because he wanted it to happen? Ain't that water does not have the ability to make these produce, produce susceptible. The people, therefore, practically speaking, odom, a person, a kalem or utensils, a petis or fruit, which were soaked with liquids. They became wet with liquids, and they were uprooted, not with his will. Even though that item touched food by his will, they do not ready the produce. Why? Because it was not uprooted from the source with his will. Because that water was uprooted against his will. Therefore, if it happened not with his will, then for all practical purposes, for all intents and purposes, it's still in the ground. Water in the ground, do not make ready. But if the water which was on the person, if the water was uprooted willingly, and then it touched food willingly, they become ready. And here the Rambam spells out the scenario. He has water which is flowing in its natural flow. So he takes a plate or a bowl, turns it towards the flow of water against the wall. What's his intent? He wants to wash his bowl. 
His bowl has uh, food stuff on it. That's his dish, his own private dishwasher. So the question is, he went with his hands, took the bowl, and stopped the stream of the water. That water in that bowl will now be considered as fit to make foods ready for impurity. And if he placed produce in that water, they're now ready. Because the water has been uprooted from its natural flow into this bowl with his knowledge. That's what he wanted. He wanted to wash the bowl. In order to wash the bowl, you have to put the liquid in the bowl. So that's scenario one. Scenario two, if he bent, turned the bowl to the wall. So in order to protect the wall, he doesn't want this water flow to root his wall. So he places the bowl there. It's not about washing the bowl. It's about protecting the wall. Hamayim Shabbat, the water that now went into the bowl, Ainon Kitlushim are not considered uprooted. They do not become ready because he has no interest in this water entering the bowl. He's just trying to protect his wall. He doesn't want the wall to become moist and soggy. I don't blame him. I know where he's coming from. So scenario three, his intent was he wants to wash the wall. So he takes his bowl and the bowl directs the water to the wall. So now if it was the wall of a house, his house wall, well, you know what? This has now become ready for impurity. Why? Because the house wall was not born that way. The house wall, he went to Home Depot, he bought materials, and he built a house. Shehatolish, something that was once severed. Shehibre, which is now connected to the ground. For the purpose of readying something for susceptibility to impurity, it's considered as having severed. So the wall is not considered an extension of the ground where the water is flowing. Because the wall is a wall of a house. For all intents and purposes, the water on this wall are just like water in a pot. Because the wall was constructed from raw materials which were harvested a long time ago. However, if it was a wall of a cave, of a cavern, a natural wall, God's wall, it's not a building, but it's part of the natural structure of the ground, then the water on this wall, are not considered uprooted, because it's part of the natural surface of the wall of the cavern, and that's the flow of the water. Next case, and again, these items are discussed. The vast majority, if not all of the items that are coming, are in the Mishnah. If somebody bends over to drink water, he wants to drink water. What about the water that goes up on his mustache? If somebody has a mustache and he puts his mouth to the water, he's going to have a very wet mustache. Or as one of my kids used to call it, your smush. Or the water that hits his mouth and bounces off. When somebody bends down to drink water, the water that ends up on his mustache or on his mouth are by his will. Because he knows that's what happens when he drinks water. This is well known that a person who drinks is going to bring up water on the exterior of his mouth and his lips. And his mustache, rather. Being that nobody's forcing him to drink. He's willingly drinking. And for all intents and purposes, this water has been uprooted by his desire. But, that's it. The water which also goes up in his nose, or in his beard, or in his head. Nobody says he has to dip his whole head into the water. That doesn't happen willingly. He was sloppy. What is willing is his mouth and his mustache. So therefore, the water on his mouth and his mustache can make food susceptible for impurity, not the water on his head, or beard, or nose. Hey, next case, he fills a barrel. He wants to fill a barrel from a source of water. The water, which ascend with the barrel. You know, there's water that ascends in the barrel, and there's water that ascends with the barrel. And with the rope that's around the neck of the barrel, and the rope that is required to lift the barrel out of the well. And all of the above are considered harvested water by the person's desire, because he wants to draw water. And that's what happens when you draw water. However, the water that came into the rope that's holding this barrel, more than required, which means he really soaked the rope, he put it in the well, much more than necessary. That water was not his intent, it was sloppy. What if a person placed a jug beneath a pipe, like a drain pipe that's flowing with water? Call Hamayim Shalgaba, all the water, on top, on the outside of it. And the rope, but also not considered severed from this drain pipe by his will. Therefore, it's not considered as ready for impurity. If somebody got soaked with rain, and this person was a primary source of impurity. Let's say a person just came from touching a corpse, and he got soaked with rain, so he is the primary source of impurity. Now the water even though the, the water runs from the upper portion of his body to the lower portion, to hate him, they are pure. Why? Because he didn't want the water to come upon him. Assuming that he shakes it off of him as soon as he can with all of his might. If it's just drip dropping, 
Slowly, and as it drips drops, it becomes impure. The water becomes impure. When they are pure, they don't make anything ready. Because they're not considered severed from him by will. But if he began to shake it off, it shows that he wants to move it. He stood under the drink pipe. Lehok had to cool down. Every day he had to wash himself. There's a big flow of water coming from the pipe, and he's showering in it. It's hot, or he's cooling off, and he's other That's considered free will. Mimhaya is considered by his will. Mimhaya tamei. If he was impure, amayim shalot tamei. Any water that comes upon him is considered impure. Next case, Zayin seven chabish shoyim malei pedus. If there was a barrel filled with produce, v'yaradadelapaseicha, and drain pipe water filled his barrel, what are you going to do now? And did the water come in by his will? And are the, are the, is the produce now ready for impurity? He should shake off the water from the produce, and they're not considered ready. Even though he may want it to be there until he shakes it off. And here I'm just going to share from a note, because I mentioned earlier that in this chapter there are several discussions between Basil and Beshamai. In the uh, Mosnaim book, it's note 31. Since he did not desire that the water enter the barrel, the fact that it remained there does not cause his pouring it off to be considered as intentionally exposing the produce to water. This follows the opinion of Beishamai. Oh, I'm sorry. This follows the opinion of Beishilo. Rather than that of Beishamai. And this is one of the disagreements in the Mishnah between Beishamai and Beishilo. Ches 8. Another big issue in the Mishnah is Areba Sheyorad Adelaf When water from a drain pipe flows into a kneading trough without the desire and intent of the owner. Our issue is, what about the water that jumps off of it, that bounces off this needing trough? What about the water that flows off of it? This water is not considered as being severed from the water source by his desire, because that's not his intention. If he took the water, the shelf to pour it out. The water in it is not by his will. What if he left it? That it's just dripping in. Anything that bounces off of it, anything that floats off of it, is not considered severed by his will. If he took it, the to pour it out. This is considered ready. If he took it somewhere else to pour it out, being that he didn't pour it out right there, that means that he desires it. And here we have, based on the words earlier, even if the owner picks up the kneading trough to pour out the water, the water it contains is not considered as having been uprooted willfully. So he says here in note 34, this is the opinion of Beishilo, the school of Ilo. Usually when there's discussion between Beishamai and Beishilo, the halacha is like Beishilo, which is why the Rambam rules twice, like Beishilo. The school of Shammai maintains that since the person did not overturn the kneading trough in its place, but instead carried it, pouring out the water is considered willful. The school of Ilo differs, maintaining that since the only reason he picked it up was to pour out the water, pouring out the water should not be considered as a desired act, but something that he was compelled to do. And this is the note here describing again these halachas as based upon the Mishnah in Machshirin and the varying discussions between Beishamai and Beishilo. And these are very famous discussions. If somebody immerses his utensils, and he washes his garment, in the cave, in a place where there's a natural reservoir of water, or wherever. So the question is, the water that comes out in his hands, he's considered with his will, because that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to immerse his utensils. He was trying to wash his garments. Obviously his hands are going to have water. But the water that's in his feet, is not severed and uprooted from its source. Willfully, because he didn't necessarily have to put his feet in there. They just ended up there. What if produce fell into water? The guy extended his hands to the toilet and he took them. Fruit fell into the water, somebody extends his hands and took them. Like Hokshiru, that's not considered readying for impurity. Because they fell. All he's doing is taking them out as quickly as possible. However, while he's extending his hands to get the fruit, he says, ah, I'm a chaya, I'm going to wash my hands as well. Now, the fruits were ready because of the water in his hands that he wanted. Because now, the fruit on his hands is shalapetis, and on the fruits, I think it should become severed willfully. If somebody puts his fruits in his produce, let's say, Hamayim into the water, by his own free will, willfully. Takes his fruits and puts them into water. What kind of water? I'm glad you asked. If it's water in the ground, groundwater, in caverns or what have you, as long as his fruits are in the water which is in the cavern, these fruits do not become ready. Why? Because it's groundwater. It has no, the water has never been severed from its source. But if he removed the fruits, now there is liquid on the fruits outside the source. Now there's liquid on his hands outside the source. Now they become ready. Because they've been severed from the ground source by his will. Spell it out. Here he gives an example of radishes or turnips in water in a cave. Even a woman who is in a state of impurity, which is a pretty severe state, called the Nida state, the menstrual cycle, she may wash these radishes and turnips there, and it's still, it's still considered pure. Why? Because it has never been severed from its source in the ground. This is groundwater. 
However, Elisu, if she raised it out of the water, that's a different ballgame. Any little bit of fruit connected to water is contaminated by her touching it. I guess the answer would be probably, this is my own hypothesis, somebody else can pick it up. And finally, again from the Mishnah, Kupa, a container, Shimalaya Turmason, which is filled with turmos beans. And this container, filled with turmos beans, was placed in a mikvah. A person who's impure can extend his hand, his impure hand, and he can take beans from the container in the mikvah, and they would be considered pure. Because they were never ready by exposure to liquids. Because he took the beans from it, he has no interest in the water in his hands. He didn't want to wash his hands, he didn't want to do anything, he just wanted a few beans. However, if he removed them from the water, anything that touches the container is impure, because they became ready with the water in the container, which were removed from the water by his will. But all the other beans should be taken in the container to maintain their ritual purity. End of chapter 12.